Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green. Today I'll be speaking with the philosopher and host of the Real Atheology podcast, Ben Watkins. We discuss the moral argument for God's existence, whether or not there are objective moral truths, the is-ought gap, meta-ethics, and many other related topics. I think morality is one of the most important subjects we can think about as non-believers. In any debate, it's bound to come up, and culturally, the myth that you can't have morality without religion is still surprisingly prevalent. When I ask what's wrong with religion, that is one of the major issues. The religious myth that atheists have no morals, or that without a god, there's no morality or reason to be moral. The truth is that with or without god, most of our problems remain. Some things do in fact change. But are those changes always for the worse, as many suppose? It's nearly impossible to argue that homosexuality is immoral without religion. That would be a good change. There's also no blissful afterlife awaiting us, so there's more reason to make this life good. It's the only one there is. There's no afterlife to ensure ultimate justice either, so the only justice we'll have is the justice we make. On the other hand, there's less enforcement of morality without God since there's no great surveillance camera in the sky. Maybe that's not a good thing, but I actually think we can get along without Big Brother. Maybe I'm naive, but I don't think humans need to be surveilled and threatened at every moment. In reality, without God, you're forced to think more carefully and thoroughly about morality, because no one is giving you the answers. There's no church service to attend. There's no perfect book that already has all the answers, that's done all your thinking for you. You have to do a lot more work, figuring out what's right and wrong. Because God said so is no longer on the table. So you end up thinking a lot more about moral philosophy than you otherwise would have. That's a good thing. So it's not that everything is exactly the same without God. In some ways, it's better. With or without God, as I mentioned, many of our problems are the same. We still have to figure out how to navigate the complications of family life. We still have to figure out who to vote for. We still have to figure out how to treat one another and how to build a good society that maximizes well-being. My guest today has spoken a lot on foundational issues in moral philosophy. We throw around some ethics jargon, but the terms are being defined and explained as we go along, so it shouldn't be an obstacle. I learned a lot from Ben, he gave me a lot to think about, and I very much enjoyed speaking with him. So without further delay, Let's get to my conversation with Ben Watkins. Ben, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the moral argument for God's existence. So it comes in various forms, which we can talk about, but most of them can be boiled down to the assertion that objective morals wouldn't exist in a godless universe. Most people believe that morality is real and objective in some important sense, and if that could only be the case on theism, that must mean God exists. So in your view, 
What's wrong with the moral argument? Um, so there's quite a number of objections that we could mention, but um, for the sake of brevity, I'll only mention a few. The first objection that I think is the most important is to really just start out seeing what the apologist is actually doing with this argument and then compare it to other secular meta-ethical views. So I think if you ask these meta-ethical questions seriously and you start looking at the competing views, you'll start to see that the modified divine command theory as a whole is something of an archaic view that doesn't really get a whole lot of purchase and has some potentially very worrisome implications. And so um, such the, those worrisome implications are things like God commit, potentially commanding us to do some, perform some horrible act like killing and eating our children. And so then that modified divine command theory would imply that it was morally obligatory for us to perform such an act. So those are obvious big worries just right off the bat. But I think one of the more pressing concerns with the argument is that there's not a whole lot of support for the premise or the, the, the uh, premise that essentially says that moral truths imply theism. That's, uh, that's the, uh, that's the uh, crucial claim that the defender of the moral argument needs to defend. And I find that, def that the defense of that claim very, very lacking. Right. Um, you know, it will often be a burden shift um, in that they'll say, well, that, that our default is just that, well, obviously, if God exists, then we're good. We've got objective morality. But if God doesn't exist, what is there for objective morality? I think that whole way of thinking about it is, is, is somewhat misguided. Do you think we let apologists off the hook too easily? Like, it's sort of implied that the relationship between God and morality is so obvious. Like, if there's a God, there's obviously no issue with moral truth. No need to have any further discussion. So I think that's an interesting observation, um, because I don't know if we would—certainly uh, so sometimes people, we, we, we let— uh, apologists off the hook a little too much on this. But to give more credit to the apologists here, this is an apologetic. They are putting forward, th there's a script for this. And so um, atheists just go down that script. Mm -hmm. um, I think that happens a lot. And so and a lot of times I push back on that script and I, and I go, no, I'm not just going to uh, so uh, another really good example um, would be that the argument just takes as a premise that objective moral values and duties are a datum, that it's just something that all parties to the discussion are going to agree exist. Right. Well, that so I, and, and that really it ultimately is the defense of that premise. You know, uh, uh, I'm thinking specifically of William Lane Craig, who says, you know, but, you know, he'll say some philosophers have held that there are no objective moral values, but we all know that there are objective moral values and duties. And, we'll and we know it deep down, like he's, he's appealing to those moral, those very, very basic moral intuitions, which I don't think is in and of itself 
objectionable, but he does it in a way that there is room for reasonable disagreement about the existence of objective moral values and duties. For example, many philosophers whose views I very, very highly respect don't believe in them. You know, they're ethical constructivists or ethical error theorists who think, um, or they're reductionists who think that we can, you know, reduce um, ethics basically down to psychology. That's, I mean, that's, that's, a per, that's a perfectly respectable view in the literature. And so I think the um, dismissal of these subjective, or I should say these anti-realist meta-ethical positions, is just too fast. So those are all people who reject the second premise of Craig's argument. And just to make Craig's argument explicit, premise one, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Two, objective moral values do exist. Three, therefore God exists. And you're saying that there are, you know, if we're sort of being good sports about it, we are going to reject either the first premise or the second premise. And Mm -hmm. although you do not reject the second premise, that objective moral values exist, there are, it's a respectable position to hold. And it's not exactly obvious that, uh, that morality is objective, but we have to reject one of those two premises. Yes. So, and I, and I think it's important in any discussion, if, if our aim is to resolve disagreement and, you know, discover truth for its own sake, we just, we take all of these views seriously, even when we're presenting you know, our, you know, if, if I'm defending the argument from evil, for example, I'm going to talk about free will. I'm going to talk about soul building. I'm going to talk about all these places in which the problem of evil is considered weak or it's open to being responded to because that's, that's where the discussion is supposed to be. And I feel like a lot, the apologetic script avoids a lot of that. Now, a lot of that might be intentional because again, it's it's giving a defense of of the faith. So in in a way, that's part of its job. Um so we can only object so much, but I just I think that your your original question is do we let theists off the hook or apologists off the hook too easily? Well, well yeah, in a way because we just follow into the script. We should, if we have that awareness of what the meta-ethical landscape looks like, once their script is thrown out and they're doing actual meta-ethics, their case is very, very, very weak. Mm. As you know, there is no atheist position on morality, and you just made reference Correct. to the, you know, the sort of ethical landscape. And um, I'm sort of agnostic about morality in a way, like I'm sort of a vague pluralist. Like, I feel like I have a a million different opinions on morality and like none of them are reconcilable and I don't really know what to do about that. Yeah, there's no ethics, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) There is no atheist or naturalist position on morality and these differences can be, you know, difficult to communicate and sometimes we talk past each other. Um, So I was hoping to start out at sort of a fork in the road using the moral argument as a tool and we'll just get more specific from there. So let's just simplify everything down to these two groups of atheists. You can deny the first premise of the argument we read earlier, or we can deny the second and accept the first. There are obviously more than two conceivable responses to the moral argument, but if we are taking the argument as valid and we bracket all our concerns about, you know, the nature of God, you know, what God's nature Mm -hmm. is and how it got that way, the nature of morality, 
and the relationship between God and morality, which is kind of what I was hinting at earlier when I said we let them off the hook too easily, because I don't think the relationship between God's God and morality is so clear. And, you know, not to mention all, all the problems with divine command theory. If we bracket all those concerns and we're good sports about the moral argument, we're, you know, like I said, we're rejecting the first or second premise to avoid the conclusion. So we have to say that there are plausible accounts of objective moral values that don't involve God, which is something you have a lot to say about. Um, that would be denying the first premise. Or we have to reject the second premise and say there is no objective morality. Both would work, but let's start with the rejection of the second premise, which is not the option you take personally, but many sure. of our uh, listeners subscribe to the view that there is no objective morality. Yes, the anti-real. We can call this the anti-realist position. Right. Um, so we'll we'll have a secular anti-realist position, and we'll have a secular realist position, and we'll just think of those as just two parties to the discussion. And so right now we can just talk about the um, secular anti-realist um, approach. Using if we're using the moral argument as a tool, so to, so to speak. So the atheist can maintain that no there just there aren't these objective moral values in the world because they might have one of three broad positions they might be non-cognitivists so they might believe that our moral statements aren't even the kinds of things that true or false so that when we make a judgment like murder is bad it's really like a judgment like boo murder Mm -hmm. It's something that couldn't be true or false. Now, obviously, the, the, there's much more sophisticated versions of non-cognitivism today um, than that very simple emotivist one that I just gave. Then there's another class, which also you could say are the moral non-cognitivists, are the moral nihilists. Moral nihilists believe there are no moral truths. But there's a very specific type of nihilist who says that, look, our language functions to as when we make moral judgments to be true or false. When we make moral claims, they are supposed to be true or false. It's just they're all false. It's like our concept of witches. Like we can make coherent claims about witches, but no thing in the world has the property of being a witch. So all those claims are just systematically false. Um, and then the last position is just the common subjectivist uh, position, which is that there are moral truths. They can't, some of them are true. It's just they reduce to facts about humans, uh, human psychology. Um, and so that when we're making moral claims, those moral claims can be true, but they're true in within a certain social con construct. And so these are what they're, they're called ethical constructivists. So they think that all of our basic ethical judge, judgments common among homo sapiens construct our moral reality. And to be clear, denying the second premise doesn't necessarily mean that there is no morality, as you were just saying. It's just there's no objective morality or it's it's not real in a certain sense so denying the second premise to you know defend the people who might do that it doesn't mean you have no morals and those who deny the second premise are not a homogenous group as you were just explaining so exactly. with those caveats um 
Rejecting the second premise would get us out of the moral argument's conclusion, but what are the weaknesses of those three views that you just outlined? Like, what is it, like, for example, what does denying the second premise look like in reality? So that, to be honest with you, it's really mostly a theoretical uh, disagreement. Hmm. So most parties to the discussion are going to agree that things to things that like pain are bad. They're just going to disagree on how that fact is cashed out in, you know, our philosophical understanding of our place in the universe. And so for me, what motivates me is I think that these anti-realist views have very implausible implications. So to kind of dabble a little bit in my view, I believe that I'm a realist about reason. So I think that there are considerations in the world which can count in favor of our acting in certain ways or believing certain things. And I think that our, those kinds of truths, some of those are moral truths. And so if we take this anti-realist route, I think that there's implausible implications that it could be rational or morally obligatory to eat a car or something. You know, it's just, to, to me, just theories that have these implications to me, just it just seems wrong. So, because I feel like when I make epistemic judgments, especially like, um, I think I'm getting something right. There's something where in which I'm responding to in the world that there are arguments that have the property of being valid and having the property of having true premises so that there is this objective truth. There's this real thing that, that um, we're discovering. Hmm. So I think that about mathematics. Um, I think about, I think that about modality, like possibility, like what things are possible or necessary. Um, so I won't do my, uh, I won't do my mean William Lane Craig impression right now, but I think at this point he would accuse you of, uh, atheistic moral Platonism, you know, exactly. because if, if the yeah. moral truths are out there to be discovered, then that must mean that they exist in some sense. But if there's nothing but matter, which, you know, a lot of people conflate atheism and materialism. You know, yes. how can there be moral truths unless you're some kind of atheistic moral Platonist? So what does he mean by atheistic moral Platonism? So I think there's um, a conversation, a background conversation, too, that needs to be mentioned first in that William Lane Craig has done a lot of work on the nature of abstract objects. So he is under the impression that the existence of abstract objects would threaten God's sovereignty. And so roughly in the, this debate on whether abstract objects exist, there's this platonic view where abstract objects are real, and then there's this nominalist view where you try to reduce all of our abstract concepts to concrete particulars in the world. I, I think that sometimes the terms are, are called tropes. Um, I, I, haven't, I haven't looked at this stuff in a while, so. I'm sure some of your listeners will point out if I'm mistaken in the comments. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think I listened to, uh, have you ever heard of Jim Holt? Yes. Yeah. I, the last time I, I was thinking about this was like maybe a year ago and I was listening to him on Robert Wright's podcast, talk about moral Platonism and, or I mean, uh, mathematical Platonism and nominalism. Yeah. And I think there was a third view that I can't remember the name of. Yeah. There's like, there's hybrid views. And so, um, 
he's he is making the claims his case william lane craig is making his case in these terms he's he's using the language game from this discussion so if you're not familiar with that discussion it might seem a little weird because if you type in atheistic moral platonism that's not a thing in the metaethical literature you're that's yeah. a that's a term that he and he's perfectly within his rights to put forward this term but it it's within the context of that he has a nominalist position about abstractions and so he thinks that the notion of there being these modal truths or mathematical truths or normative slash moral truths is just weird. And so I think that's probably the, there, there's two really main objections to my view um, that I think I have to take seriously. And the first is, it's just weird. <laughs> and, so it, you know, it's, it's, and that's, and I mean, it's even formulated this way um, in the literature, the argument from queerness is just saying that, look, these things are just so weird mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that they couldn't be part of the fabric of the universe. And then the second objection is a knowledge is an epistemic objection of knowledge. You know, how can we have knowledge of these truths? And I actually think that objection is the stronger of the two objections. I think right. the first the one that it's weird is a pretty weak objection. I mean, I think if something is counterintuitive, you would want to have an account of why it seems counterintuitive. But at the end of the day, it's not really a reason for rejecting a view. So how do moral intuitions fit into your conception of morality? Like, can we trust them? Uh, you know, moral intuitions, conscience, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. So I, I do take for granted my most basic moral intuitions, the ones that like pain is bad or, you know, happiness is something that we ought to pursue for its own sake. So I think, you know, moral truths are built on claims like that. And were those just crafted by evolution? Could they have been different? Yeah, so yes, they were crafted by evolution, and yes, they could have been different. But I think that our basic moral intuitions are true. I think pain is bad, pleasure is good. And right there you have utilitarianism, you know, hedonism. Is hedonism the whole truth? I'm skeptical. I think it's part of the truth. I mean, just to go back to the moral argument, denying the first premise, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. So you obviously disagree with that. You think that, or would you, I mean, objective moral values, is that how you would frame it? So I don't frame it. I understand why Craig frames it the way he does. Um, But in the, so he's conceived, we conceive of morality differently. He conceives of it in a command implying sense. So if he frames it in terms of values, he can then frame it in terms of God's nature. If he can frame it in terms of duties, duties, commands, there's a natural right. connection with that. So he won't so I would frame it as objective moral truths. Mm. Just moral statements that are true independent of any observer's attitudes towards them. So this is a way in which my view is more objectivists than any modified command theory. So the modified divine command theorist is still trying to reduce moral truths to facts about a subject, God. So at the end of the day, it's really a form of subjectivism, but it offers a level, a, a degree of objectivism that other subjectivist theories don't offer. 
And so my view would be even more objective than that, would say, look, moral truths are independent of all observers, period. It's not an observer-dependent thing. So would morality exist without any conscious creatures, on your view? Yes. There would be moral truths, but there would just be no moral beings capable of appreciating those truths. So in the same way, there would still be mathematical truths. There would just be no one around to appreciate those mathematical truths or, to use the jargon, cognize those truths. And I've heard you, I don't want to skip ahead too much, but I've, I've heard you say that your view doesn't have any ontologically weighty implications. But yes. it's, that seems kind of um, at odds with that, that there would, you know, there would be these moral truths that would exist even without, you know, consciousness. Well, hang on, let me loop back for a second. I, I don't think that there, there would be morality without conscious creatures because I think that consciousness wow. is necessary for there to be such a thing as morality. Like you sort of need, like, I think morality is about the experiences of conscious creatures. So without conscious creatures, there just is no morality. And that's not really even a utilitarian position. I think that no matter what moral framework you subscribe to, it kind of presupposes creatures that are having experiences. Like if you think that honor culture is the best way to set up a society, then for people to be motivated by honor or, you know, you shouldn't do that because it's dishonorable you're still presupposing the existence of creatures that are having experiences. So I just think there is no way to have morality without consciousness first. It's, it's, a, great, it's a great point. And um, I think this is one of the stronger objections framed of the weirdness or queerness objection. And I think what a lot of it boils down to is our way of thinking about the world. So science has primed a lot of us in a way of thinking about the world in this ontologically weighty sense of particles, fields, all those you know physical terms, things that seem within time and space and the causal reality. So I think that's one way to think about the world. I don't think that the world is limited to the causal world. So what do I mean by that? What on earth? So the best way to think of it, I think, is, is to think about the concept of a reason. And so a reason is a consideration which counts in favor. So if you think about something in the world counting in favor, that's not a truth about something that science can go in and in an ontologically weighty sense tell us the particles that make it count in favor of something. That's not that kind of truth. The reason I say that my view doesn't have any ontologically weighty implications is because I'm not adding anything to the causal domain of my ontology. I am saying that there, there's, there, my ontology consists of this causal realm, which is natural, and I accept that. But I also think that there are these different kinds of facts. But you're, are, but you're not adding like you're not adding stuff to the furniture of reality. Exactly. I'm adding facts to, yeah, there's a different kind of fact. So like, just like there's rivers and there's sonnets, these are just two different kinds of things that couldn't be the same thing. I think there are causal truths and I think there are normative truths. I think there are causal truths. I think there are mathematical truths. I think there are mathematical truths. I think there are modal truths. Mm -hmm. I think there are all different kinds of truths. 
And so I think that the entire discussion between Platonists and nominalists that Craig is, you know, the language game that he adopts, I think their questions are just muddled from the get-go. I think that the reason that no agreement can be found in those domains is because those questions aren't clear enough to even be asked in the first place, because I think it assumes that ontologically weighty way of thinking about the world. I, I also think that a muddling factor is the analogy to math that's always being drawn in these discussions, because, you know, math seems like this objective thing, like everyone, it's like, well, obviously everyone agrees about math, but nobody agrees about math. <laughs> like, no, you know, like we were alluding to the um, argument between Platonists and nominalists. So I one thing I've always found problematic about um, views sort of like yours is that the analogy to math that's always being drawn doesn't really clarify anything for me because I don't know what I think about the philosophy of math. Like, I don't really know. Um, I'm also kind of agnostic about abstract objects and how, how they exist. That's all. So I think this is an awesome objection um, because I've, I, I, I totally see why you would think about it that way. And so the, the, what I would recommend is to think about it in terms of mathematicians shouldn't be worried that all of their theories are false because there aren't these ontologically weighty platonic properties in the world. Does that make sense? Say that one more time. So like mathematicians, they're making theories. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're putting forward these theories and they're saying these theories are true. We, 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 we can agree as much that mathematicians do that. Right. Now, for those mathematicians to then worry that all those theories are false because there aren't these platonic number objects, I, don't, I think that's an unwarranted worry. Mm. I don't think mathematicians should worry that all of their theories are false because there aren't these platonic. So similarly, by analogy, I would say ethicists shouldn't worry that all of their moral or normative theories are false because there aren't these ontologically weighty platonic normative properties. So could could there be an analogy between, you know, scientific theories and what you're talking about? Like a, a scientific theory doesn't necessarily add to, you know, they don't have any ontologically weighty implications. So I'll probably catch flack for saying this, but basically what you're talking about is a science of morality. And I think that ultimately that's I think that's ultimately what we're looking for. But now that's not to say a science that's purely empirical. So I'm using I'm, so Sam Harris gets criticized a lot for this because I'm using science in its most broadest concept right now. It's our it's I'm talking about thinking uh you know thinking systematically, making theories, peer review, um you know those things that you know making it a sign you know in the same way that maths can be science. So lo- uh, logic, like a science of logic, a science of mathematics, hmm. a science of morality. And I think that, that I think that's something that can come about. I think that's something that we can have. We can talk seriously about objective truths. Well, yeah. let me ask you about the uh, the science of morality, because a lot of people who don't like what Sam Harris has to say about morality will bring up the is ought gap. And they'll say mm-hmm. there, there categorically can't be a science of morality because science deals with factual, descriptive, 
is statements, but morality is about normative, you know, ought statements. You shouldn't do that. You know, you should do this. And those are not descriptive, factual statements. So how do you think about the is-ought gap? So that's why I say there are different kinds of facts. Mm-hmm. So there are, I'm so, if I'm, if I'm saying a moral fact, I'm not saying about the way the world is. I'm using something about a concept like the way the world ought. So it's a different concept. So these two things can't be the same. So I totally accept the is-ought gap. And I would say that my view is the only view that admits of this different kind of fact and avoids that objection completely, which is why when I was saying earlier, I'm using science, that term, this is in its broadest conception. So the science that you're saying right now is a narrow one where it's empirical, it's descriptive, it's limited to the causal domain of physics. So I think physics gives us the most actual, the most accurate picture of causal reality. But I don't think reality is exhausted by the causal domain of inquiry. I think there's abstract, not a causal facts, modal facts about possibility and necessity, math, math, normativity, logic. Well, I think logic's another really, you know, um, the the example that I like to give a lot. We all have reason to accept the conclusions of valid arguments with true premises. That's just a true claim, but that's not a claim about causal reality. That's not a claim that I think can be reduced to some fact about causal reality. There is nothing in reality that could, you know, in space and time that could bump in and make that not the case. You know what I mean? Right. So to be clear, you think there can't be a bridge between is and ought, which I agree with. I think that it's impossible to get just from nothing but is statements, nothing but descriptive facts Correct. to normative facts. You can't bridge that gap. You cannot um, bridge that gap. But that doesn't mean that morality is not objective or there aren't moral facts or moral truths. Correct. Okay, because a lot of people conflate those two. They think that if you can't bridge the is-ought gap, then, you know, morality is not objective, and they think they deny the second premise. A lot of people uh, uh, push the is-ought gap not realizing that it also applies to their view. Um, I'm, I guess I've been picking on Dr. Craig. All I'll, I'll use him as an example. Uh, he used the is-ought objection against Sam Harris. We used, we used him as an example earlier. The is odd gap rejection applies to Craig's view too. Yeah. <laughs> because at the end of the day, facts about what God has commanded or what God is like are not normative those aren't normative facts. Exactly. So he so basically his argument is well, my view bridges that gap better than than Harris's view bridges that gap. Well, I think if you assuming you also subscribe to this is odd gap objection. We would just say, like, like n- neither of you bridge it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it <applies to> both <laughs> of you. <laughs> right. So you're saying that there are descriptive statements about, you know, God's preferences, about, like, what God thinks about morality, but that doesn't imply that we ought to follow his preferences? Correct. What, what reasons would God have to have those pre- preferences? Are those preferences in themselves good or are relevantly good or worth achieving? You know, um, 
God's, it's logically coherent to think of a disembodied mind who's who's just maximally malevolent. And those are his, his preferences for horrendous atrocity. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, is this good? Is this, do we have any reason? So the objection goes, what reason do we have to obey God's commands? Mm-hmm. The only answer that you can give is because we ought to obey the commander. Well, that in and of itself is a non-natural, non-supernatural, irreducibly normative truth. Right. They're smuggling <laughs> in an ought statement. Exactly. That ought statement is what I'm saying they can't, they don't, they, they, they can't have, and that only my view can provide that admits of this irreducibly normative truth that we ought, because otherwise you just say, I don't care what the commander has to say. I have no reason to care about what the commander has said. If there is a reason to care about what the commander has said, then that reason is what, what makes the commander said why I should do it and not the command. The commander is then superfluous. This is just the euthyphro dilemma. Right. I like the analogy you brought up earlier with logic, because I've always thought there was sort of an is-ought gap with logic that you could also draw. Like, because I, I think you can't bridge sure. the is-ought gap, but, um, but I think that that's not really a problem at all, because I think you can just start with an ought. I think science starts with oughts. So mm. this is going back to Sam Harris, you know, he's saying like, you know, science presupposes value, you know, we value evidence, we value peer review, we've, you know, there's all these values that we presuppose. Logic is no different. Exactly. I, I, I totally agree with you that we're, you know, um, contradictions are bad. That's an irreducibly normative, <laughs> right. non-moral truth about logic. Why be logical? You know, we're saying that if, Exactly. Like um, these are these are claims you have you have to start from somewhere. And now we can disagree on whether, you know, the constructivist would say, okay, well, that's just, you know, where our psychology is biologically ingrained to just abhor contradictions. So, you know, that's the, you know, that constructs our, you know, but and and they could be right about that. But that doesn't change the fact, you know, that these things are still real and that um, we're sort of apprehending things that are that are real about um the universe that we live in you know just yeah. because they were crafted by evolution doesn't somehow make them any less yeah yeah real i i i totally agree but you know it's like okay so if a equals b and b equals c then a equals c it's like yeah that's logical but then i could i could just move the problem one step back and say well why should you care about logical consistency you know and like you is people yeah. do the same thing with morality like well why is suffering bad well, why should I care about right and wrong? It's like, well, you have to start somewhere. Why is pain bad? I get that one all the time. And yeah. I'm like, really? <laughs> why is pain bad? <laughs> or why is happiness good? Like, why, like, you know, well, well, happiness can't really be good if God doesn't exist. And I'm like, really? Why can't I pursue <laughs> happiness for its own sake? Why can't I have reason to care about that for its own sake? What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, Thomas Nagel said something about this, I think, in regards to meaning. And I think meaning and morality are, like, related um, pretty closely. But he was saying how it was in his essay, The Absurd. He was talking about how, you know, chains of justification have to end somewhere. And that's okay. (laughs) Like, (laughs) chains of justification can end, and that doesn't actually, you know, invalidate the whole project. 
because yeah. to demand otherwise would lead to it, to would lead to an infinite regress. So if we're taking on the principle that nothing is justified unless something outside of itself is justifying it, well, that leads to an infinite regress where nothing is ever justified. You know, not just morality, but you know, logic or valuing evidence or anything. Yeah. And you sort of, like I said, you have to start somewhere. There has to be something that is sort of foundational which is how I tend to, I've been framing morality recently over the past couple months because I did a lot of research into Alvin Plantinga and, you know, properly basic beliefs, you know, reformed epistemology. And yeah. I kind of, you know, not intentionally, but I started, I, I like internalized some of, some of those words. I think of morality as sort of, the way I frame it is like moral foundationalism, where it's like there are properly yeah. basic moral truths that you can't get underneath, that you start from, you know, like suffering is bad, and then you build up from yep. there. And like, so you can't bridge is and ought, but like I said, I'm just starting with an ought, like you, you know, suffering is bad. I, I totally agree. And so in a way, this is my, you know, I, I claim to be a, an empiricist and a, and a human, but in a way, this is where my, you know, dogmatic rationalist comes out where I'm like, you know, like, no, we, we, we don't have to just start with empirical observations. We can start with rational intuitions. like. Contradic contradictions are bad. We should accept the conclusions of sound arguments. These are intuitions that I think we can trust. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to square your view that there are these truths that we're kind of apprehending and that in a way we're sort of like our moral intuitions couldn't have been anything, you know, but they could have been different. So those are the kind of the two things that I'm trying to resolve right now, that our moral intuitions could have been different, but they couldn't have been that different from what they, they could. Are. They couldn't have all been systematically different. Right. No. So I think having true moral beliefs does have survival advantage. So being able to discover there's only one moral truth, I believe that. So the more you are, the better you are able to discover that moral truth, the better you're able to cohesively live in a society, the more you will flourish. You see what I'm saying? And so, so are you saying that these moral, these moral truths are kind of playing a role in evolution? Like they're sort of guiding evolution in a certain sense? Mm, guiding? Driving evolution? No, because that would imply that they're causal. No more than like our mathemat that, that mathematical truths are guiding evolution. Mm. I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't say guide. I would say restrain. Mm, they okay. restrain. They, 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 you know, you know, there's just certain ways that our mathematical intuition just couldn't, our mathematical cognition just couldn't have come out. So our cognition just couldn't have come out believing that pain is good and that pleasure is bad. It just, it, our moral, we would not have, our moral, we just would not have evolved to the point that we did. Right. Because I think having those true beliefs does have survival advantage. Hmm. So there is an evolutionary, debunking argument for morality. And so I think that's the strongest objection against my view is someone like Sharon Street, who, you know, says, look, evolution, we, we, we just, we couldn't have knowledge of these things. Evolution would have, there, there's no reason to trust any of our moral judgments. I, I don't yeah. exactly see why giving an evolutionary account of our moral intuitions or our conscience would mean that morality isn't real or objective in some sense. So the basic thrust of it is that we could rewind the tape of history and we could evolve a very different morality that might just as well 
have survival advantage. And so because there are all these different ways that morale, you know, our moral cognition could have come about, um, that we don't know which one could be true. Any of them could be true. None of them could be true. And so, I, I mean, I don't ultimately think the objection goes through, but that's the thrust of it. And a lot of these people, a lot of ethical constructivists, they're redu- remember, they're reducing uh, morality to psychology. So just being able, their case is made very, very strong for just appealing to the psychology, you know, the psychological facts. But if you believe that there's something independent of human psychology that has to do with morality, that that objection only gets so much traction. But I think it's the most important one. I don't think we've actually mentioned the name of your position yet. So how do you characterize your views? So unfortunately, the the terminology in metaethics is horrible. Yeah. But uh, um, the, 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 the label that my view is most widely um, called is ethical non-naturalism. So you'll be able to find that if you go to Wikipedia, there's an ethical non-naturalist page. If you go to Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, there's moral non-naturalism. So they mm-hmm. you know, change it up just a little bit. That's essentially the view. And so it, it's really just... Uh, four four claims. That's my view. Um, so the first being that um, moral statements express genuine propositions that can be true or false. So I'm my view assumes that non-cognitivism is false. Um, the second claim is that some moral claims are true. So it assumes that that error theory or nihilist view I mentioned earlier is false. And I believe that some of these true claims don't depend on the attitudes or responses of observers. So that's the objectivist thesis that's saying that that these truths are objective and independent of our psychology. And then the last one is the most crucial claim. It's that moral claims can't be reduced to something non-moral. So when we make a moral statement, we cannot then cash out that same truth in completely non-moral terms. So I'm an anti-reductionist or a non-naturalist. So the naturalists think that you can reduce moral state, their objective, and you can reduce them to non-moral facts. So there's a lot of, um, thank you for explaining that, by the way, but... So non-naturalist and anti-reductionist are not uh, phrases that our listeners are going to love, I'm guessing. um, But those things mean sort of different things in the context of ethical philosophy. Isn't that right? Uh, So I'm using them kind of interchangeably. So so when I um, say anti-reductionist, I'm I'm referring to that fourth claim that I just read that I think is the most important, that you cannot reduce. It's, It's irreducible. When I say that it's non-natural, I'm also meaning to say that it's irreducible. So, but that's not because I'm a metaphysical naturalist. Right, right. That's what I'm getting at. It's not a threat to naturalism. Exactly. That's why I hate this terminology. Right. Um, But it's, unfortunately, the language game was in place before I I got to it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's it's, it's definitely uh, a, a way that it's misleading, you know. Uh, with even especially with theists, uh, when uh, when I go on their shows and they're you know like, 
oh, well, you're going to come on and defend naturalism. Well, what you know view are you going to defend? And I go, well, ethical non-naturalism. And they're like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I know, I know the terminology is bad, but I, so, it's the least misleading way to describe my view. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, uh, you have an episode on your podcast, Relay Theology, from 2017 that's titled Irreducibly Normative Truths, which is to say, like, moral statements about ought or should, you know. Even non-moral ones. So normative is broader than moral. So, like, a non-moral judgment would be, we all have reason to want to avoid pain, or the, we all have reason to accept the conclusions of valid arguments. So that's normative because, you know, we ought to accept the conclusions of valid arguments. Right. Just ought statements broadly? Yeah. Okay, ought, statements. Right. So, ought is one of these very, very nebulous con- concepts because, our, because of our language. Because you could have ought in like a rule-implying sense, um, like you mentioned earlier, like a code of honor right. or rules of etiquette or what it is for some law to be legislated. You see what I'm saying? Those those would be com- completely descriptive, but we would still say you ought to obey, you know, traffic signs. You see how that that ought has that, you know, a reducible sense. So it's not surprising that people think that we can reduce all oughts to psychology mm-hmm. or to you know, it, it because this is the way our language gets used, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to go through all those three words there, irreducible normative truths. So there yep. are truths about, you know, these these things, and they're normative truths as opposed to descriptive truths, yep. and they're irreducible, meaning they have no component parts that are themselves not normative. Yep. They are primitive. So they're, they're something that we start with. Like, we, like you were saying earlier, like in the foundation, it's like we start with right. pain is bad. Evidence is good. Is Derek Parfit the one who said um, something about climbing the same mountains on different sides? I think so. Parfit was famous for saying this about normative ethics and saying that, you know, consequentialism and deontology and contractualism are all climbing the same mountain from the different sides. Now, when we shift to meta ethics, it wasn't until his posthumous work was released that he gave a similar metaphor of how because he was he's he's actually very strict non-naturalist in metaethics whereas you know he's synthesizing these normative views his metaethical views are pretty clear cut but he's trying to resolve different disagreements with naturalists like uh railton and so they're you know they found a way to you know blend their views and climb the same mountain from different sides I think that's why I I described myself broadly as like a moral pluralist, because I think lots of people who are thoughtful about ethical philosophy, we're all kind of climbing goodness mountain, so to speak, you know, on different sides. And we're using different languages to sort of get at the same thing. But I think that there's room for lots of different conceptions of morality in applied ethics. I I agree, Um, though I would certainly... uh poke poke a few uh bears by claim that i think that consequentialism that morality is essentially consequentialist um that this that admission is probably going to come back to bite me in some way <laughs> no, but i, I agree think with that you. um in some way we have uh, we have to accept that consequences matter intentions intentions matter 
and traits of character matter in moral senses. But I don't see how we under we have any real understanding of how uh, the, the the demands of morality without being cons- a consequentialist. I think everyone at the end of the day is a consequentialist, even if they won't admit it. Yeah. You know, because you know, even the deontologists at some day at some point you have to be well. Yeah, you you have to obey these rules because if you didn't, they'd have bad consequences. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> or or so you know. Yeah, if we didn't follow the categorical imperative, things would be really bad. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, or in in some way, I I think it's unavoid. I think consequentialism is unavoidable in one way. Like mm-hmm. I made the claim earlier, hedonism is p- at least part of the truth. Hedonism is a consequentialist theory. Right. It's that pain is bad. Pleasure is good or happiness. We'll say suffering is bad. Happiness is good. We should try to minimize suffer, suffering and we should try to maximize happiness. Mm-hmm. That's hedonism. <laughs> That's at least part of the truth. And so if, I don't, if you don't have that model, I have a hard time understanding what morality is at that point. Can you uh, draw a distinction between meta-ethics and applied ethics? Yes, yes. This is a great, great question. Um, so what I think separates these different domains of ethics are the questions that they're trying to answer. So let's start with applied ethics. So in applied ethics, we're asking, um, how do we apply the theories that we've come up with? So abortion is going to be the, the, the easiest go-to example. So that's a that's a real world moral situation in which we have a question of what is right and what is wrong. So in applied ethics, you're going to take an ethical theory and you're going to see what what follows from it. So if you're let's say you're a utilitarian and you're asking a question of abortion and the violinist example comes up where you're strapped to, uh, you know, some famous violinist is strapped to a system to keep him alive and he wakes up and yada, yada, yada. And so the, you know, a utilitarian might say, no, you have to keep yourself strapped to him because if you didn't, he would suffer. And, you know, keeping him strapped to and you know, some other utilitarian might say, no, you have no obligation to do that. We should be maximizing happiness. So, 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 so. Now, with normative ethics, that's where the theories come in. That's when we ask the questions. What is right? What is wrong? What acts are right and what acts are wrong? So that's where you're going to get theories like utilitarianism, Kantianism, contractualism, virtue ethics. These are where we're asking the real meat of the moral questions. Mm-hmm. Meta ethics takes a step back from the normative ethics and, and asks questions like what is rightness? What is wrongness? What does it mean? For something to be moral, how do moral properties fit into the into the world? And then I would mention a fourth one, which I think doesn't get enough love, is just descriptive ethics, and that's just the history of how of mo- humans have behaved or what they've considered mor- moral throughout history. So that's mm. just the history of human moral thought. And so that that would be descriptive ethics. Yeah, I think that um, 
you know, because I called myself a consequentialist or a utilitarian, but I mean, I think that utilitarianism and consequentialism can describe why we consider things right or wrong. Ultimately, like it can give the best account of, you know, our moral intuitions and, you know, why we consider something right or wrong. But I don't necessarily think it is the best theory to be working with when you're trying to make decisions out in the real world. Like, I think it's actually pretty flawed if you try to use it, like, in your day-to-day life. Like, because, you know, we don't really have information about the consequences of our actions. So, you know, it, it can be used to justify pretty much anything. So I think it's a pretty bad theory to be using if you're just out in the world making decisions. But I think that it's definitely true. Like, it definitely explains why we, you know, like, let's say that, like, I use the example of honor culture. Let's say that honor culture is the uh, the operating system we should be using. Like, I think utilitarianism can explain why that would be the case, even though you shouldn't be walking around with utilitarian considerations in your head because that will just lead to worse outcomes. Utilitarianism can explain why thinking like utilitarians wouldn't minimize suffering. So I definitely uh, relate to that in the sense that I think that a lot of moral dilemmas in ethical theory are of situations which I think we're going to get in rate. So trolley dilemmas are what I'm thinking of Mm -hmm. right now. So if trolley dilemmas seem to give us a lot of information about ethics and in a way they do and help us teach us about things. But like you said, it's, if you're thinking in those types of terms, that wouldn't be any kind of real world situation. If we had, you know, you know, someone wouldn't be held morally responsible for throwing the switch or not throwing the switch because in the real world we'd be like okay well why was the train system set up like this in the first place you know like so it it takes us to a level of abstraction that that loses sight of real world dilemmas and so at the end of the day what are we trying what what is uh, the utilitarian theorem justifying the assumptions in our everyday life where there, there's those assumptions like happiness is good mm-hmm. and that we ought to try to maximize happiness so far as we can. That's the moral justification that, that's relevant to our everyday lives. But in reminding yourself can help you in your, in your everyday life of saying, you know, like, hey, how is what I'm acting, how, is, how am I acting right now good for me, good for everyone around me? How do how do my actions influence others to make others more happy? Is this conducive to my own happiness or antithetical to it? And just by doing this, this very just this very action is incredibly powerful because a lot of things, you know, you'll start to realize that, you know, things that are out of your control are things that a lot of us worry about Hmm. and distract us from our happiness. And so if we're thinking in utilitarian ways of we should be trying to maximize happiness and then we recognize these ways that our happiness is not being maximized, I think that's a way in which it helps us, you know, immensely in our day-to-day life. But I totally get what you mean by it's when you move from the realm of normative theory to apply, you know, normative ethics to applied ethics, it's almost like, well, how does how do these things help me in my everyday life? Well, they don't. They're 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 there to justify those assumptions 
that we take for granted when we try to tackle those everyday lives. Right. I'm also glad that you brought up the trolley problem because I hate the trolley problem. Um, I don't think it really gets at what utilitarians are, you know, like how they are, what they're thinking. And it also creates a situation that, you know, doesn't bear much relation to any real world situation, you know, that I can really think of. And uh, have you heard of uh, James Wilson? It sounds familiar, but I, I can't place it at the moment. He wrote a paper about thought experiments in moral philosophy and how they're often just useless because they don't relate to our everyday experience at all. They sort of create a universe that doesn't exist and then say, well, in this universe that doesn't exist, wouldn't this seem wrong? And it's like, well, who cares? Uh, Like, that's not the universe that we live in. So he kind of is questioning, you know, the value of ethical thought experiments in the first place. Well, let me loop back around to, to your view because we mentioned some of the ontologically weighty implications that your view does or doesn't have. But I wanted to ask you, how do these moral truths correspond to physical stuff? Because I think that's where a lot of the resistance from atheists and naturalists will come from, which is just, you know, how do these truths fit into the big picture? And I just want to say, you know, like, you can be as speculative as you want. I'm just saying, how do you actually think that these irreducibly normative truths correspond to the material that we're made of? So I don't think they do. So I well, they so have that, to in some way. Well, I don't think so. Uh, so I don't think that mathematical truths are. So if I say like seven is a prime number, that's true, but that's not true in virtue of the way it could, corresponds to any way in causal reality. Um, I guess this is going to bring in theories of truth. And so I will use the mountain analogy in that I think that the correspondence theory of truth, the coherence theory of truth, and a pragmatist approach to truth are all climbing the same mountain from different sides. Hmm. So I think these are different ways of discovering different truths. So I don't think that all true claims correspond to reality in some way. So let me go back to the concept of a reason again. So we're going to say that something counts in favor of something else. Let's say the fossil record is evidence for evolution. It's evidence. It counts in favor of our believing that evolution is true. I don't have to go into the fossil record and look for something in the fossil record that corresponds to this counting in favor of Mm. believing evolution. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm following you. It's something that the fact does is the only way I can really say it. This is a way in which it's primitive. It counts in favor of our believing. So similarly, a fact about pain counts in favor of our acting or responding to it in some way. Can I ask you a, it might seem like an unrelated question, but I think that it's relevant. Sure. Uh, how do you think about consciousness? Like, how do you think consciousness fits into, or I mean, how does consciousness factor into your worldview? So I am what's called in the literature a neutral monist. Hmm. So I believe that there is this one substance that we can talk about in two different ways. One being a mental way and one being a non-mental way or the physical way that we describe it. And I don't believe that either of these ways are reducible to the other. Again, again, it's an, an anti-reductionist view. So 
we've got the, the terminology shows itself again. <laughs> so I, have you, uh, are you familiar with what Bertrand Russell had to say about neutral monism? Yes. Yes. So that's really where my view started was the Russellian monism along with Thomas Nagel and John Searle. Hmm. So my views would be most in line with them. Um, John Searle, but uh, John Searle doesn't really fit into that group very. He doesn't he would deny the label um, neutral monist, but I think we're more or less on the. So what he's saying is, is that you know, consciousness is a biological ph- phenomenon, no different than digestion or mitosis or photosynthesis. I think that's right, but we talk about it in a different way than we talk about digestion or mitosis or photosynthesis. We talk about it in this, you know, these with these irreducible quails, mm-hmm. you know, this these these the, the raw experiences of it. And so I think that aligns with a neutral monist view. So his biological naturalism. So I think he gets it largely right. Um, I think Dan Dennett gets it largely right. Um, well, he's definitely not on the same page as Thomas Nagel or Bertrand Russell. No, not not at all. But he is right in that consciousness is not what we think it is. It's not this supercalifragilisticexpialidocious thing that's just super mysterious to the universe, and that it's actually a bunch of different processes that we are not consciously aware of that very, very much constitute our conscious experiences. He gets that right. That's just the science. But I do think that there is the the place of a quail or qualia in the universe is that it's in some way irreducible hmm. and that we are we can talk about it in a in in mental terms and then we can talk about it in physical terms. But there's only one stuff. And so that's how I kind of avoid the interaction problem while admitting that consciousness is something that's real. You know, when you ask me, what is what is your view on consciousness and how does consciousness fit in the world? At the end of the day, my answer is, I don't know. It's one of the coolest mysteries, still unsolved mysteries left in philosophy. It's one of the things that keeps me, you know, just wrapped in it. Like, you know, every time something new, big comes out in the philosophy of religion, you know, our philosophy of religion, philosophy of mind, you know, I want to read it. I want to see, you know, where, where are we with this? What, what progress is being made? I, I, I love David Chalmers. I think that's some of the coolest progress we've made on this question in centuries. <laughs> well, there's a branch of Russellian monism that is um, panpsychist, and there's also a non-panpsychist branch of Russellian monism. But um, I'm definitely sympathetic to the panpsychist branch of Bertrand Russell's neutral monism. And I think that it might, I think that your view of morality might make more sense on the panpsychist view of neutral monism. And like I said, that's a whole other conversation, but I just, I, oh, yeah. I was curious about, there's a necessary relationship between consciousness and morality. I, I think you said you don't share that view, but I think that you just can't have morality without consciousness. Like in a hypothetical universe where there just is no consciousness and there never will be, then there just is no morality. It just doesn't even, you know, it just, it doesn't even emerge. I mean, there also wouldn't be any comedy. I I just think that all these questions kind of fit together, you know, morality and consciousness and the nature of matter. 
and uh, irreducibly normative truths. Like, I think that these things are all possible to reconcile. Not that you have to. It's certainly the hope, because it, it definitely would suck if it's just going to be disentangled forms of understanding. Yeah. I know I'm totally with you. Like, if there, if it, if we can get this whole coherent picture picture that fits together and closes in on itself as far as explanation goes, you know, and it's it's hard to say what I'm trying to say. I think that's one of the reasons Thomas Nagel says that he just wouldn't want to be a theist hmm. is because then the ultimate explanations would be part of God's intentions, which are just forever beyond our epistemic um, capability, and so we could never know. And so he's like, I don't want the universe to be like that. I want a complete explanation. If, if, if God's in the picture, I will never get that complete explanation. That's not a good reason to not be a theist, but that's the one he, I think, was the last word. I think it's perfectly legitimate to be relieved that there's not a God, but yeah, it's not a reason to disbelieve in a God or however you want to put it. But yeah, I think that it's, he says, I don't want the universe to be like that. I think it would be kind of unwise to deny whatever feelings you might have about that. And, you know, in the context of like divine hiddenness, there's all this context about like, oh, you're a resistant non-believer, so God doesn't have to give you any evidence. But I think you should just be honest about whether or not there's a God, there's pros and cons either way. I'm personally relieved there's not a God. That's not how I felt at first, but after a couple of years, that is how I started to feel. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, and we should just be honest. The most honest view, Ed, let me know if you disagree. I am relieved that there is not a Christian God. Yeah, I would not say I'm relieved that there's not a perfect being. So if there was this perfectly good being who created me for a purpose of a, a loving, infinitely loving, maximally great relationship that would last for an eternity, I can't think of anything that would be better than that. <laughs> Just by the, the, the sheer concept of it is what, I, what I'm saying. It's like it would be my greatest possible good. And so... I would just be able to infinitely grow deeper ever into a loving relationship with a perfect being. That sounds like it, it could be pretty good. <laughs> yeah, but there are other uh, things that go along with that, though, like um, the constant supervision. And I mean, like what you just described is very abstract. So I wouldn't. So constant. So I don't think con- perfect being theism would imply constant supervision. Oh, OK. That's. I think if we're going to take perfect being theism seriously, we have to take the concept of a perfectly loving being. So we have to take our concept of a perfectly loving parent and just, you know, maximize that to its greatest possible extent. And so I don't think that constantly supervising, that would be a trait of a perfectly loving parent. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So so your conception of, of, I mean— God in quotation marks is like pretty far removed from what anyone in a church on Sunday thinks of as God. Absolutely. It is not the God. It is the God of philosophers and not the God of pew and pulpit. Um, so if, so the God that I am like, when I ask, does God exist? The serious conception that I have of God in mind is one that's probably a universalist conception of God in which if there is some sort of salvation or heaven, everyone gets into it. Um, so that's certainly, I mean, that's heresy through and through in the traditional monotheisms. So, but I, I, I think that's just an implication of, if we're talking about a God of love, 
we're talking about, you know, a, a, a being that is always worthy of our worship. I think that's where you end up. And I, we, when you were saying earlier, I, you, if we're being honest about this, mm-hmm. if we're if we're taking the, if we're taking these concepts seriously, I think if you take the perfect being theist concept seriously, it doesn't end up looking anything like the Judeo-Christian conception of God. And I think there's a big tension in there. In fact, I, I parse, you know, I think of God in, in, in three con- broad conceptions. So as a disembodied mind, so people think of that as like a spirit and a soul and ghost and ghouls. But then you have this perfect being, theist way of thinking about it. Then there's the traditional bi- biblical way of thinking about God. I think these are, so the perfect being theist certainly implies that disembodied mind theist, a supernatural mind theist, certainly. But I don't think it implies that biblical conception of God or that traditional conception of God. I think that's something we could do away with. And our religious conceptions, our philosophy of religion would be much better if we were to just jettison those con- those con- conceptions. Because those tensions are obvious. I mean, that's this is where we just point out, you know, the atrocities in the Bible or pick your favorite, you know, thing from the Quran or the Book of Mormon or what have you. So uh, we covered pretty much everything that I was hoping to uh, to get to. Is is there any anything you wanted to close with in particular? I didn't I didn't have anything planned, but um, I guess I'll put in a spiel uh, that I've that I've been harking on for a while now. Of we need to stop defining atheism as a lack of belief. <laughs> oh boy! Okay, here we go. <laughs> it's getting really annoying. Uh, <laughs> to us philosophers of religion, that I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You, well, why don't you say a word uh, in defense of? So you're not. Is that called lack theism? So it has been called that. Um, so what I I distinguish it be as atheism in a non-theist in, implying sense because we already have a word for someone who lacks a belief in God. It's called a non-theist, and I don't think that um, agnosticism and gnosticism relate directly to knowledge, like a lot of people have been saying, because I think that knowledge implies belief. So I can't know something unless I believe it. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that we should just say that if you don't believe God exists, you're an atheist. atheist. If you believe God exists, you're a theist. If you believe the question of God's existence is indeterminate, you're an agnostic. And if you don't even have a God concept or you just lack a belief in God, then you're a non-theist. And so that would imply that you know, theists and agnostics are both non-theists, which makes sense. They both lack a belief in God. But I think that a lot of atheists like to play hide the ball with their burden of proof, whereas they want to say that they have an answer to a question of God's existence. But then they don't want to give reasons or an argument mm-hmm. for that claim, um, and but, so then they just say that they lack a belief and that they have no burden of proof. That's that's the and thing that bothers I, me the most about this conversation is like, we're, like you know, people argue about like what word we should use or do I lack a belief or do I disbelieve? And it's like, okay, what we're really talking about is the burden of proof. How do we know what we know? Can we just talk about that explicitly instead of just? Yeah. I think we should all call ourselves atheists, but that's just strictly for propaganda purposes. <laughs> I just think that we should. Uh, it's just... fine. I think there's an argument. I think there's an argument to be made for that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, 
for propaganda purposes, like American atheists, yeah, should be trying to include as many people in their group as they should. <laughs> as they can. And since it's the it's the most hated label, I mean, just like for the sake of moving the Overton window and uh, just making being irreligious and even aggressively irreligious socially acceptable, then we should use the, the word that people have the most negative conception of just to shift that Overton window as much as possible. If you're an anti-theist, that's the way to go. I, I, I totally agree. And, and we can do all that without ignoring the question of does God exist? And I think, I think a lot of atheists want to just ignore the serious thought that goes into that question. And one of their ways of ignoring it is just by taking on this label of saying, well, I just lack a belief. I don't, all I have to do is sit here with my skepticism and resist your arguments. And I, I just don't think that's helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure that that irritated nobody and totally non-controversial. We'll get zero messages about that. (laughs) But thank you so much for, uh, for, for your time and for coming on. I I really appreciate it. And um, I'd love to have you on again sometime. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. It was great to, great to finally connect with you and, and come on the show. Absolutely. Thanks again. Take it easy. That's all I have for you today. I have some new patrons to thank. Mark Bergshoff, Aaron Mayo, Matt Cantor, and The Bible Says What podcast. Thank you, Mark, Aaron, Matt, and The Bible Says What. You should definitely check out that show if you haven't already. And I'd like to thank my Hall of Fame patrons, Jesta, Phil Stilwell, Richard Crossan, and Pre-Nifty. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you still think it's okay to torture babies for fun, you can like us on Facebook, YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Wailers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.